Right, we are in Numbers chapter 21 this morning. Numbers chapter 21, while the children are dismissed for their class in the back there. We've got a great group of kids this morning in Sunday school. That was a blessing. Love to see them here. Numbers <clears throat> chapter 21. And then we also are going to look at John 3.14. You don't have to turn there, but if you'd like, you can. I'll read that verse in a moment. Uh, after we get to Numbers chapter 21, read a text there. The story is told of billions of people scattered in a great plain before God's throne. One of the, or some of the groups, begin to angrily question, how can God judge us? One said, what does God know, really, about suffering? She jerked back a sleeve and showed a tattoo of a Nazi concentration camp and talked about how she endured torture and death. Another, a black man, lift, uh, lowered his collar and said, what about this where there was an ugly rope burn? He said, lynched for just simply being black. We have suffocated in slave ships. We've taken, uh, been taken from our loved ones. We've lived as slaves all of our life. And all across the plain, such groups lifted their voices and complained. Each protested God for the evil and the suffering that he had permitted in their life. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where there was no weeping or no fear, no hunger and no hatred. What did God know about what mankind had to endure in the world? So each group, the story goes, uh, were sent out a leader, Chosen because they had suffered the most. There was a Jewish person. There was a black person, a victim of Hiroshima, and someone from the Siberian slave camps, and an illegitimate child. And at last they were ready to present their case. It was simple. Before God was qualified to be their judge, He would have to live what or endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born as a Jewish person. Let him be born illegitimately, or at least that to be questioned, uh, his the legitimacy of his birth be questioned and doubted, so that no one would really know who his father was. Let him champion a cause so radical that he was hated by all the established religious authority. Let him endure the uh, efforts of society to eliminate him. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him be indicted on false charges, uh, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him see what it's like to be alone and abandoned and humiliated. In fact, let him be tortured and let him die a most humiliating death with common thieves. As each leader announced his decree, there was a loud approval from all of the great throngs of people. But when the last one had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved, for suddenly they all realized that God had already served His sentence. Because that's exactly what happened. Numbers chapter 21. I want to read a couple of verses here. And I want to just remind us what God has done for us today. Verse number 4, the Bible says, And they journeyed from the Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. 
And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And verse 8, The Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. It came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he had beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. The verse I'd like to read to you out of John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Father, I pray today, as we look at this passage and others, may you speak to our hearts in a special way. Remind us, really, what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When the snakes bite, on any truck, plaque, or building, anything to do with medicine, you'll see an insignia. You probably can picture it in your mind right now. It's a serpent coiled around a pole. It is called the caduceus. And it's a symbol of healing. It's actually one of the oldest symbols of healing that exists today. And you've seen it probably thousands of times in your life. But do you know what that caduceus points to? You know what it's picturing? It refers to the incident that we just read about today. It may be one of the most bizarre incidents anywhere in the Bible. And I want to look at it, is uh, kind of unpack this today and what it means. It's a story about an episode in the life of the Israelites in which they complain against God. Specifically, they accused God of evil motives. Now, complaining is a terrible response to trouble. Complaining adds to your problems. It does absolutely nothing to solve any problems. Complaining. I once heard of a farmer who had a complaining wife. From morning till night, she would complain about everything. And the only time he got relief was when he went out to work on the farm with his donkey. One day he's out plowing and his wife brought him lunch and so he put the donkey in the shade of the tree and he began to eat his lunch and immediately she began in, started in with her complaining. All of a sudden the donkey lashed out with both hind feet, hit her and killed her dead. At the funeral the pastor noticed something odd. When women came to the farmer, there was a whole line of people as they were coming through and when a woman would come up to the farmer and talk to him, uh, he would listen for a while and then he would nod like this. When a man would walk up to him and talk to him, he would listen for a little bit and then he would shake his head like this. The pastor thought that was odd because it was very consistent. Every time a woman, he would nod as he, after she spoke. Every time a man, he would shake his head. So finally he asked him and the farmer told him, well, it's like this. The women would come up and they would say something nice about my wife, how good she cooked or how respectable she was and I would nod my head in agreement. And the preacher said, well, what about the men? Well, the men, he said, all wanted to know if the donkey was for sale. And so I would shake my head like this. 
nobody likes a complainer, amen? Nobody likes to be around complaining people. It's especially bad when we complain against the very character of God, which is what was going on here. And God responds by sending into their midst a plague of poisonous snakes that bite the Israelites, and they begin to die. Now, looking at this story, you could say, and people do, could say God looks really vindictive. I mean, the people are complaining, and he sends in these poisonous serpents. He looks pretty vindictive, and not only that, he seems a bit indecisive because he immediately changes his mind. They pray, and then he says, okay, I'll heal you. And then, beyond those two things, he looks very peculiar in the cure. This is God himself. He could just very easily say, okay, everybody is healed, but he doesn't do that. He goes about it kind of in a weird way. How weird is it to make them look at the very thing that's killing them to cure them? Yet that's what God does. So you read this story, and to some people it doesn't make much sense, except the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus points back to this story when he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Then, right after that, he says that famous verse that we know so well in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now, that whenever you see a hospital, whenever you see an EMS truck, or whenever you see anything with that snake around the pole, the, uh, that, that uh, symbol of healing, remember this verse, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because that's really what that symbol means, and that's what it for sure means to us. You see, the book of Numbers and Jesus are saying the same thing. There's a disease that can kill you, and this disease has one and only one remedy. And I want to look at the disease today, which of course is sin, and then I will look at the remedy, which of course is the Son of Man lifted up. Look at the disease some people are bothered by God's response. In fact, you see a lot, really, of people today writing about these type of things. There's a book that I would not recommend. I haven't read. I've read segments out of it called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins and different other books where they try to discount God. And one of the things they, uh, a popular claim is that God, the God of the Old Testament's a monster. And, of course, we know that not to be true. We say we are in the age of grace and uh, really every age, I, I always like to say we're in the church age because every age that's ever been has been one of grace. You can find that all throughout the Bible. He sent a flood, but Noah found what? Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Grace has been all throughout the Bible. And so, uh, but some people are bothered by this response. Some might think it's overkill. But I want to show you that it's not at all. God is trying to teach the seriousness and the character of the disease that's killing us all. And I want to break this down. First of all, the seriousness of the disease. Something happened in the 1940s to change the philosophy of many thinking people. The world saw unimaginable evil. People herded into gas chambers and killed by the many thousands. Death camps reared up and treated people worse than decent people would treat their hogs and animals. Up until World War II, uh, Western people, or especially intellectuals, they had a very optimistic view of human nature. The average uh, thinker for a hundred years or more had, had uh, come to the conclusion that human beings are basically good, and they are decent, 
The reason that we have wars and crime and violence is bad education, bad environment that people are raised in. Now that idea largely died in 1945 because after seeing the evil that was done to innocent people, you'd have to come to the conclusion that Ernest Becker came to. He wrote this, he said, I started out believing in bureaucratic science. We could deal with the problems of society because human beings were not that flawed. Some time went by, and after he saw what he saw during this season of life, he said, there's something wrong with us. There is something evil in us. How could anyone be capable of doing what happened in those death camps? There are two answers to this, and forgive me if I just take a moment to get a little philosophical here, because I want to get to, the, to a point that I believe it will help us to understand. To the question, how could anybody be capable of doing these things? One answer is that there's something in some people that allows them or makes them capable. Now, this is what was said right off. Newspapers and uh, pundits were talking about it. In fact, American GIs that were uh, interviewed after they had seen some of these horrors, they would say things like, there's something about those Germans or there's something about those Japanese that makes them capable of this. Now, the inference in that is we would never do something along that line or that wicked like they would. And so the first answer, there is something in some people that makes you capable of it. That presents a problem on its face. If you'll follow me on this line of thinking, if you say there's some people like that or there's some people that are subhuman or there's some people that are under me uh, worse than I am, then that essentially puts you in the same mindset as the ones who committed the heinous crimes in the first place. Uh, as soon as you start to say there's somebody below you or less than equal human being, or as soon as you say some people, only some people are capable of what happened there, that is self-justifying behavior. Some people are more wicked by nationality. Some people are more wicked by culture. Some people are more in inferior. That is a self-defeater because that very... That, that, that very issue then makes is the attitude that makes the death camps possible in the first place, making somebody under you. Now, what's the other possibility? Well, that's the one we don't like. If it's not something in some people, the truth is there's something in all people, something in all of us that causes, un, under the right conditions, any of us can turn into or, or commit the worst of sins. We don't like to think that way. The Bible says, Wherefore take heed, he that thinketh he standeth, lest he fall. And we need to be careful that we don't ever think we're above anybody or anything. And so, if that's true, if there's something in all of us, and that something, by the way, has a name, the Bible calls it sin, when that something in us allows us to do any kind of wickedness, then we, when we see sin in our life, we cannot treat it lightly. God never does. So when sin rears its ugly head, even if it's in an accepted form, that many people, you know, we rename sins today. Uh, the Bible calls it drunkenness. We call it alcoholism. Uh, something that, uh, in the Bible, it's something you do wrong. And in our society, it's something that happens to you. It's not really your fault. And so we rename sin all the time, but no matter if, if it's accepted by society or not, we see sin rear its ugly head in our life, we had better not treat it lightly. 
Sin is serious, and God never treats it lightly. Now, often a headache can be indicative of a far worse problem. A brain tumor or a clot or something like that. And, and sometimes it begins with a headache and there's something much worse going on. Well, that's kind of the same way with sin. I mean, to look at their sin here, we may think it's not that big of a deal. I mean, they're, they're just complaining. They, because in the wilderness, because it was with desert, they're not capable of sustaining a large group of people in the desert like this. And so every morning, God sent manna down from heaven. There's been a lot of, of uh, speculation about what the manna was like. I think it was something along the veins of peanut butter pie, peanut butter cookies, something like that. I think that makes sense if you dig in the Hebrew, you find stuff like that. But Or you don't, you make it up. Either way, going on, but... But uh, God sent these things down and they would pick it up. They would turn it into uh, cakes, into various types of pastries. And they got to the point, if you think about it, God is sending this down every day. The Bible does say it had a uh, taste kind of like honey. So it was a good, sweet, nutritious type of thing they were getting every day. And they started complaining. That's not enough. We want more. We don't like it anymore. In fact, they said here uh, in the... Uh, uh, the, the verse 5, the end of verse 5, our soul loathed this light bread. They hated it because they were complaining. But this complaining was really just a headache. Something else is a little deeper is going on here. This is just a symptom. And God did what He did because He knew that the complaining, the dissatisfaction, was a sign of something much worse going on inside. And in there I want you to see the character of the disease. Now, the nature of sin is that it makes you feel nothing is ever good enough. The nature of sin is dissatisfaction. My job isn't good enough. My situation isn't good enough. The person I married is not good enough. Sin makes you feel like nothing is good enough. Go back to the original sin. We are in the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve? God created them. And uh, he gave them a perfect world. And they disobeyed when God said, don't eat of that tree. But why did they disobey? You remember their situation. God had given them everything and it was perfect. He had given them taste, given them good fruit to enjoy. He had given them thirst and then gave them water to drink. He had given them love and then he had given them things to love. Not only uh, a, a mate he provided for each of them, but... He also gave His own love. Uh, everything had been provided before men got there, and all those things were for Him. He gave man, Adam and Eve, dominion over all of these things that He created. It was a marvelous paradise that they lived in. Every sound was a delight. Every feeling was a good one. There was no cold. There was no thorns. There was no tears. There was no pain, and praise God, there was no mosquitoes. Amen? In the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. All these things God had prepared for man. And then suddenly another appears. He was attractive. He looked good. But he had done nothing at all for mankind. Not a single thing. Now they had a choice to make here. They had a choice to follow the one who had done everything for them or to follow the one who had done nothing for them and you know which one they chose. They chose to follow Satan in the form of the serpent. Now, how did he convince them to do it? Well, if you read the story, you'll see 
the, the sin of eating from the tree was much more than just the fact that they wanted an apple. I, I'm saying apple. It's not saying apple was the one, but I, you know what I'm saying. Uh, for, for years, people have thought it was an apple tree. I don't know why. I think it was probably a persimmon tree. Whoever it was, uh, they, they, it was more than just hunger for a fruit. It was dissatisfaction. Everything God's given us is not enough. I want more. I want what I cannot have. And so that's how Satan got them to sin. Now, listen carefully, dear Christian. You'll find as a Christian, this is one of the most practical lessons you can learn because the nature of the sin in our life is that you're never satisfied. You find something wrong with what you have or with what God's given you. Let's just take a really quick trip through the Ten Commandments and we'll illustrate this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am dissatisfied with you, God. I'm going to have my own God. That's a dissatisfaction. Thou shalt make unto thee any great, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Just like Aaron, who made the golden calf and the Israelites unhappy with the Lord God. Uh, here's Moses gone. I'm not happy with God, what he's doing right now. We'll build our own God. Number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Frustration and disrespecting the Lord. You'll take his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Oh, I don't want to go to church. I've got a lot better things to do. Uh, honor thy father and thy mother. I'm not satisfied with the parents that you gave me, God, and so I'm going to go my own way. Thou shalt not kill. I'm not satisfied with God's judgment. I don't trust that he's going to be fair, and so I will execute my own judgment. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's an easy one. I'm not satisfied with the mate that God gave me. I'm not satisfied with my husband or my wife, and so I'm going to step out. Thou shalt not steal. Another easy one. I'm not satisfied with what I have, and so I'm going to take what you have. Thou shalt not bear false witness. I'm not satisfied with the truth, so I'm going to make up my own truth. Thou shalt not covet. I'm not content with what I have, and so I'm going to crave what you have. Do you understand? Everything, all of our sin, is based on we don't feel what God's done is good enough. You could go on and on. But the character of sin, yes, there is a disobedience. But the disobedience comes because of an attitude of dissatisfaction. Sin distorts you into thinking nothing that God's done for you is good enough. Here these people, this is how crazy their thinking is. They're getting fed every day by God himself. And they're complaining that we had it better in Egypt. You remember what was going on in Egypt? They were getting whipped. Their babies were getting thrown into the river. Their, their young people were getting killed. They were slaves in Egypt. And that is how warped Satan gets our thinking. All the things God's blessed us with. And he gets us to major on the things we don't have right now. It's amazing how sin works. It's character assassination of the goodness and love of God. That's what sin is. That's the disease. Then we see the remedy. God shows us the perfect remedy. He sends in snakes the, to lead to repentance. Now, do you know what the word for snakes is here in the Hebrew language? It's interesting. Seraphim. Does that word sound familiar to you? Seraphim is what a lot of times angels are called in the Bible. Seraphim means the flaming ones. And angels are called that because they often appear in a blazing fire. But these snakes were called fiery because when they bit you, you died. You got a raging fever. You felt like you were burning up. And you died with a terrible, horrible, insatiable thirst 
that just consumed you. You were, they were the seraphim. They bit you and they made you burn up. And what God is saying here is I'm letting happen to you physically what you're doing to yourself spiritually. There is an insatiable spiritual thirst in you. And this is, there's a real disease that you have. And this physical is just a picture of what's really burning you up. He sends them a physical to show them a spiritual. And by the way, they get it. I want to show you in verse number 7. We're, we're, look at what they said when they came to him. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Now, this is the first step to repentance. You know what I think is odd? They're living life. God's feeding them every day, raining manna down from heaven. And they're complaining, complaining, complaining. Here's snakes coming in their midst, biting them and killing them. You notice complaining stop? This is something, have your parents ever said, you quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about? Well, that's kind of what God could have said here. You keep complaining, I'll give you something to complain about. They're not complaining anymore. <clears throat> what are they saying here? We have sinned. So the first step in repentance is for people to realize, for us to say, not to say, it's unfair, this is too much, You're, this is overkill, this is an overreaction. They didn't say any of that. Uh, they just said, we've sinned. That true repentance says, Lord, anything you send in, into my life to wake me up is justified. True repentance is what we see here, I believe. Re repentance is a focus on sin, not on the consequence of it. And then God shows them there's a provision. God says, put a bronze snake up on a pole. Have you ever killed a snake? I was raised in Missouri, and we had lots of snakes there. Uh, not not too many poisons. We had water moccasins and different things, but we had a lot of harmless even. But no no snake's a good snake. Amen. Snakes are awful awful creatures, and to hate them is godly. Read Genesis chapter three, and you'll see that. If you like snakes or you have a pet snake, there is something seriously wrong with you, and you need to go to counseling. That's my opinion. But I don't like snakes. We were we would go on hikes or we would go out to the woods or we go down to the river. And I was the oldest of four boys. And if my brothers and I went, I, this is the kind of person I was then, so kind, I would let them be the leader. Who wants to be the leader today? And I would let them be the leader as they head because that way if there are snakes, they're in front of me, you see. So uh, that's only half true. But I would let them be in front. But we did find a snake. What, we do the same thing every time. You take a big stick, you beat them on the head until they're not moving anymore, and then... What almost always we do, you've seen it in a hundred pictures before, you take that stick and you raise that snake up. You ever seen that before? That's how you look at it. Now, if, if there was one snake and some brave soul would have went through the camp here and he would have killed the snake, this is what he'd have done. He'd have picked it up on that pole. He'd have been walking around. Hey, I got it. No, everybody would have hope again because the one snake was dead. But it wasn't just one snake. There were thousands of them. And so what God said to make a bronze snake. Really what the message was from God there is, I'm the one with the power to heal you. I'm the one with the power to stop the snakes. Look to me and my mercy and you'll be healed. Now Jesus takes it a step further. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Oh, don't miss this. This, of course, initially the first thing it means is that Jesus will die. 
A lifted up snake is a dead snake. A lifted up snake is a crushed snake. A lifted up snake is a snake that's been smitten. But he goes beyond that. He doesn't just say, I'm going to die. He's saying, I'll die as the serpent. What is the serpent? Well, the serpent is the sin. It represents the dissatisfaction of God, the rebelliousness, the thirst. It represents all the things that sin is and all the things that sin deserves. And so when Jesus said, I will be lifted up as the serpent, I won't just die, I'll die as the serpent. That's talked about again in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul does not say that God made him sinful. Because if he would have been made sinful, then he'd have been selfish just like we are, and he'd have never died for us and for our sin. But he actually, the Bible says, made him sin for us. He treated him the way sin ought to be treated. And he did it for you and I. Can I remind you, when Jesus was on the cross, what was one of his final words? I thirst. He got the fever. He got the convulsions. He got the raging thirst. He said, I thirst because it all fell on him. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And then we see here, you just look. How do you get saved when you, when you got bitten by a snake? How did they get saved from it? How were they healed? Well, they just said, look. Look on the snake. Look on the brass serpent there. You don't go over and bow down to it three times. You don't do all kinds of work to try to earn anything to get that healing. Uh, you don't provide any effort. All you do is look. Years ago, there's a young man named Charlie with an agony in his soul. He knew he was a sinful person. He didn't know how God was going to accept him. And one night he was uh, caught in a really bad snowstorm and he got to get some shelter. He ducked into a small Methodist chapel. They were having service that night and even the preacher couldn't make it because of the snowstorm. And a deacon got up to preach. No one else was there, only four people, this deacon and this young Charlie. Uh, he opened up the Bible, the deacon did. He'd never preached a sermon before, but his text was from Isaiah 45, 22. It's in your bulletin today as your memory verse. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. The deacon said, do you see what this is saying? You don't have to do anything in order to be saved. You just have to look. You don't have to walk to God. You don't have to jump through hoops to get to God. You just have to admit that He's done it all. You just have to look, and He'll save you. Charlie realized as he heard this message, wait a minute, I've been doing all this effort, I've been putting all these, trying to earn my own way, and, and He's done it all. And he started to understand that how God has paid the price, and all I have to do is look, all I have to do is receive. With only four people in the service, the deacon looked down and he saw this visitor. And he said to Charlie, young man, you look miserable, and you'll be so until you obey my text. Charlie suddenly realized that he'd been running, he'd been jumping through hoops, he'd been working, he'd been trying to earn. And all God wanted him to do was look. And he had to admit he couldn't save himself. That all he had to do was put his trust in God. And he did just that. He grew up to be a man you've heard of. He grew up to be the great Charles Spurgeon one of the greatest preachers that's lived since the Apostle Paul, in my opinion. And he did much for God. 
And that is how sin is remedied. Jesus died in our place. He took our punishment. Now all we need to do is look to Him. The Bible says, Look unto me and be ye saved by all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. By the way, even if you've been a Christian a long time, I tell you this, there's still poison in our system, isn't there? We still have to deal every day with the snakes nipping at our heels. We still have to deal every day with our old sin nature. How do you continue to overcome it? Well, you do it the same way you get saved. You keep looking at Him lifted up. He is the one. He has given His all. He And that is enough. When we are tempted to be dissatisfied in our life, which is really the source of all of our sin, a dissatisfaction with what God's given us, remember what He's done for us. We, we look at Him lifted up. He has defeated sin. He's defeated death. Your life, your eternity came, comes from Him lifted up. What a blessing that is. So as the snakes are biting you this week, and they will, there'll be all kinds of things to try to discourage you, to try to get you to sin. But you remember to stop looking down at the snakes and lift your eyes toward Him lifted up. He's willing to give that deliverance if we're willing to look to Him when the snakes bite. I want to encourage you today, if you're here today, friend, and you, we've all got the same sickness. We've all got the same disease. That is sin. There's only one way to get cured from that sin disease. And that is to look at the lifted up one. At the Son of Man, high and lifted up the way that this serpent was. It's a great picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. Don't leave today if you're not sure of your eternity in heaven. Could I have every head bowed, every eye closed? This is a message both for people that aren't, that, that aren't bitten by the snake and people that are bitten by the snake or those that haven't had their sin taken care of. Uh, you don't have to leave today unsure of your home in heaven. Making sure that God is not uh, that God is your Savior, you can do that today. And then, dear Christian, it's so easy for us to live unsatisfied, uncontent lives, constantly looking for something else. Let's remember what we have. Let's remember what He's done for us. As you stand along with me.